All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Uh, so if you want to get to Mark 14, we're going to be starting the longest chapter of the book of Mark. We're going to do that all today. So just, you know, get settled. Mark 1, 14, 1 to 67. Just settle in. It's going to be, going to be, just get comfortable. If anyone wants to take a spot on the couch, you know, just like, just kidding. We're, we're just going through verse 11. It's going to take three weeks to get through this chapter. So Mark 14, verses 1 to 11, it says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure, of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory, in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when he heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for uh, the opportunity to study your word, to be challenged, encouraged by your scripture. Uh, We thank you for this letter that Mark wrote back to the church that is in Rome uh, at this time. And and we just pray, God, that as we look at this passage in particular, that you would challenge our hearts, uh, focus us back on why we exist, which is for Jesus. God, help our hearts and our lives truly um, portray that Jesus is our goal and our mission. Lord, I pray that you be with us during this time. These words would be your words, not mine. God, I just yield to you, Holy Spirit, and just ask you to speak in spite of me, speak through me, that your word would be heard this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, Mark wrote this text, right, this, this whole letter that's being sent back to uh, the city of Rome, to those Christians that are there that are being persecuted. And as we've talked about throughout this, this is, uh, you know, a, a wonderful disciple of Jesus, but he, he intentionally has some things he wants to get across. And he is an editor, right, in some respects of Jesus' life and saying, okay, this is what I want to take from what I experienced walking with Jesus, and this is how I want to put it in front of you so that you will be encouraged by the gospel and its centrality in your lives. And so we've talked about how Mark in particular uses this little device called a sandwich. He loves sandwiches. I love sandwiches. I know Luke loves sandwiches. Luke had one of these sandwiches. He had one of these sandwiches this week. He had one of these. How was it? Fantastic. 
Christy's not here. Can you give me a real review? Real review. Is, no, yeah, okay, pretty, okay, yeah. Like in the standard of breakfast sandwiches, we're like, uh, you get like one, one to ten. Where are we at here? Need some work? Eight. Eight. All right. Hey, I'll take it. Okay. So we got a sandwich here again, and, and this sandwich isn't as fancy as that sandwich. That sandwich has lots of stuff in there. You got bacon and egg and cheese and all that. This has uh, two pieces of bread and one thick, you know, point right in the middle of of the sandwich we're going to be walking through today. So. In, in this chapter, or in this, in this section, verses 1 to 11, we see Mark giving us a narrative, right? This is, his, this is how he uses a sandwich as a literary device. He starts a narrative, he interrupts that narrative with a new narrative, and then he completes the narrative, okay? The, the first narrative is a piece of bread on both sides, and in the middle, we're going to get some other story that's very related and, and powerful. So today, we have at the beginning, and I'll walk through this uh, as we read through the scripture, but we have the Sanhedrin looking around at ways in which they could capture Jesus and kill him, okay? So the first narrative is the Sanhedrin is looking for a way to kill Jesus. At the end of this, Judas pops up and completes that narrative by desiring to give Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. That's the first narrative. Right in the middle of that is the story of Mary, who we think Mary Magdalene, comes to Jesus and prepares him for burial in the pouring on of nard. So we're going to walk through that, but this is, this is the sandwich we're working through today. Verses 1 to 2, it says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So a couple things are happening here. We, we, see the, we see the goal of the Sanhedrin. They are looking at Jesus. They've watched his ministry. They're jealous of the authority of his teaching. I think it's plain to see. Um, they're jealous of his influence. They also think he is a blasphemer. Uh, why do they think he's a blasphemer? Because he is actually claiming at different parts of the book of the Gospel of Mark to be God, to be equal to God, okay? He is standing in a place where he is saying, like, if you, you guys, I am the Messiah. I am the one that has come. I am the, the time has been fulfilled to me. The kingdom of God is here in me. Repent and believe in me. That's what he's been proclaiming throughout this time. And so that kind of comes to this culmination point in Mark's Gospel where he goes in the temple and starts throwing stuff around, right? Turning over tables and yelling at them and saying, you've turned this house of prayer into a den of robbers. And so the Sanhedrin is so upset with him and the message that he's been preaching, the signs that he's been doing, the crowds that are following him, that they are looking for a way to kill him. They just have a couple of barriers in their way. Like, why don't they, as the people in charge, just go kill him, right? Like, they're in charge. They're the Sanhedrin, right? Their word stands. They have the authority to prosecute and uh, bring this person to trial if they, if they have charges. The problem is that the crowd loves Jesus right now. The crowd is there celebrating Passover. They're in awe of what Jesus is doing. They're, they're looking for more signs and wonders by this man. They think he might be the Messiah. They misunderstand what that really entails. Um, but they are interested in Jesus. And so to take him off the stage would be probably a bad idea. Why? If the crowd gets upset, if the crowd turns against them, they're going to have a riot. The city is as full as it ever is in any part of the year, okay? 
uh, if, you know, this is like similar to if you were the city that was chosen to host the Super Bowl, the amount of people that are flocking to your city, it probably, it probably I don't know, like makes your city time, 10 times as large as it normally is population-wise. And here it's similar to that, but even, even more so, okay? There are so many people in this place that Rome regularly for Passover increases security to make sure no zealotry, you know, people that are coming to bring people up against Rome pop up and start causing a commotion. And so security is very high. The last thing the Sanhedrin wants to do is cause that they're going to look for a way to find him in secret. They're looking for a secret way to, uh, to get to him. They're afraid, right? They're afraid of the crowd. They're afraid of the security of the Romans. And they're looking for a way that they can easily get a hold of Mark interrupts this narrative um, with the narrative of Mary anointing Jesus for burial, right? So what he's trying to do is call to attention what is actually happening. You've got two sets of groups that are happening here. The people that have been listening to Jesus and hearing what he says and responding to it, and the people that are looking to control and keep power. These two people are in the room, right? The Sanhedrin and those who are looking for Jesus to become a Messiah against Rome. And those who are actually hearing Jesus' words and what he's been saying about himself. And so Mark wants to highlight this to us, and he does so by recounting the story of Mary anointing Jesus for burial. So starting in verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a, t a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So they're in Bethany at, at the house of Simon the leper. Um, and we have some reason to believe, actually, that this is uh, Simon, that Simon may actually be the father of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Okay? Um, we don't have, like, specific exact of that, but in other accounts of this message, we see Mary is the one that's anointing him. Uh, we see that Mary is the sister of uh, Lazarus and, and Martha, and so we see that this could actually be Simon, their father, who was formerly a leper, so much a leper that his house was known as Simon the leper, okay? Um, so they're reclining at table, and Mark describes it as, as just a, a woman uh, who brings this alabaster flask of pure nard, uh, and very costly. He wants to interject kind of awkwardly, like, like President Trump or something like that, very costly. Um, and so here's some... Here's, it's, it's the, it's immediately what comes into my name. Not this one, the one before that. Is there one before that? Yeah, there we go. This is nard. This is a nard root, okay? Um, it comes from India, um, and so you actually make this oil out of it. Um, and so she, she gets this, um, 
bottle of nard, and it goes on to say this. There were some there who were saying to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So as others are looking on at what this woman has done, what Mary has done, they say, why would you waste this much nard? Like, this is expensive stuff. This is a a year's wages. We could have used this to minister uh, to the poor. Um, Yeah, so we've got a little, I think, is that that the next picture? There we go. Yeah, so this is is the nard. This is nard. This is uh, from the Holy Land, made in Jerusalem, which is funny because the, the nard root is from India. So, like... Anyway, um, you can sell anything in, in Jerusalem that is tied to the Bible. This is $25. You can get this online. Um, so I don't, I don't, this is not, not exactly the thing. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, so, so they are upset that, that, that this woman would, would break this flask, crack this oil, and pour it over Jesus. They say this money could have been used in a better purpose. There's a better way we can use something so valuable. We could use it to help the poor. And they scold the woman, presumably in front of Jesus, right? They're in a room together. She's doing this. And she, they're literally like rebuking her in the room for what she has done. Why would you waste this money? Why would you waste this, uh, this oil? We could have used it. And so then Jesus responds. He does not agree, it turns out. Uh, verse 6 and 7. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Jesus challenges them um, and says, you know, you see this scenario happening. He's there rebuking her, and he says, leave her alone. What she's done is beautiful. You, you are misjudging what is happening in this moment. You, in your religious heart, are looking at a beautiful thing and saying, oh, we could have used that for a better purpose. And Jesus is saying, what better purpose than to anoint the Son of God before he goes to die for the sins of the world? There is no better purpose for this oil to be broken. Leave her alone. And he gives them some reasons why they should mind their own business. First, it's literally none of their business, right? This wasn't their nard. This was Mary's. She didn't, like, take it from the disciples and crack it over Jesus' head. This is hers. It was hers to give. He says, leave, leave her alone. You should recognize how beautiful a thing this is. First, he says, it's, it's none of your business. First, because it's hers. Second, um, he says, you know, if you want to do good for the poor, you can always do so. They will be with you after I go. And he says that because the truth is, they're not concerned about the poor in this, okay? That's actually not their heart. Uh, we see later, and we see in John's account of this, that the Judas is among those who is concerned about this use of money, uh, and he's one that has been stealing out of the finances of the disciples as they carried around for ministry. So the concern isn't about money. The concern is about who's in control of the things. And these uh, men step up and say, we could have used this for a better purpose, i.e. lining our pockets. 
um, it reminded me of anybody ever uh, follow Charity Navigator? Ever look at Charity Navigator when you're giving? Yeah, okay. Good website. If you're ever giving to something, you're like, I don't know what this organization is, sounds cool, you should check it out. You should go to Charity Navigator and go, what is the, this, the structure of this, uh, this, this charity? Are they using their support the right way? Because they keep a list of like the worst offenders and they've got metrics on this and all this. If you give to a charity that's taking like 50% of the donations and admin fees, then that's the wrong charity to be giving to, okay? Uh, most charities that are doing a good job are closer to like the 15 to 20% range and that's like on the edge in terms of admin. So like if you're gonna look for a charity, look for one that actually is taking your money and putting it to the cause that they support, okay? Because it turns out transferring money is like not, it's actually not too hard. It's pretty easy to do. You don't need to do 50% admin. Anyway, okay, so look at Charity Navigator. It also reminded me of a really great Seinfeld episode. Anybody know? Anybody know it? It's a write-off, Jerry. It's a write-off, Jerry. That's right. And it's called the Human Fund, right? The Human Fund. It's a write-off, exactly. So uh, George comes up with a, an organization called the Human Fund, and he gives everybody at Christmas a gift of a donation in your name to the Human Fund. His company is so odd that they decide to give him $20,000 for the Human Fund, and he doesn't have a Human Fund. <laughs> He tries to create it, and all that. anyway, whatever. So don't start a human fund. Look at Charity Navigator. Make sure your money's going somewhere. But this is, honestly, though, like, this is their heart. They're George Costanza. They're looking for money for themselves. They're looking for a way to give themselves a pat on the back. And that's literally where they're at right now. They do not see the value of what is happening in this moment. They don't actually care about the poor. And third, he says to them, this is... First, it's not your business. Second, you don't actually care about the poor. But third, this is a beautiful thing that she has done. What she has done is beautiful. Um, okay, lots of movie and TV references for you today. Sorry. How many Sandlot fans? Token, token, quick. Yes, definitely. Me, yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to jump up and like just celebrate. But anyway, okay, okay, cool. Yeah, Sandlot. Uh, so Babe Ruth ball. How much is Babe Ruth ball worth? Hattie. No. I wish. That'd be nice. What? A trillion billions? Trillion billion. I think that's probably closer to a trillion billion. Okay, so actually I was surprised by this. Babe Ruth signed a lot of baseballs. Like he, he was into signing baseballs, it turns out. Um, like every occasion he got an opportunity, he would actually sign baseballs. So he signed so many baseballs that... Actually, most Babe Ruth baseballs are somewhere in the range of like $5,000 to $10,000 worth, which is like way lower than I expected it to be. There are, however, some Babe Ruth baseballs that carry more value. And so one of them is th this one. You go back. Go back. You're getting ahead of me, Abe. Um, one of them is this baseball. It says Babe Ruth. And to the right, you, say, you can see it says, I'll knock a home run homer for you on Wednesday's game. Okay, this is before the playoffs there, and uh, in your camera, who they're playing, whatever. He promised this boy, Johnny Sylvester, who had just gotten injured falling off a horse. He promised him in his recovery at a hospital, as he signed this baseball, that he's going to hit a homer for Johnny. Turns out that Wednesday, he hit three homers in, in that game. Johnny actually stayed in contact with Babe for the rest of, rest of Babe's life. So, like, they actually became friends, and he recovered, and all this thing. Now, this ball... 
went for $250,000, way above the price of most Babe Ruth baseballs. But I guarantee you that this ball is worth way more than $250,000 to Johnny Sylvester, right? Like, that's, that's crazy. Like, during his life, I'm sure that was a very valuable piece of memorabilia. And if you would go to the next slide. Nope. No, the other one with all the baseballs. Yeah, that one. Okay. This is, this is the Sandlot baseballs, right? Yeah, you guys knew it. They, the kids are ready to talk about this so much. These are the Sandlot baseballs. We got... We got the Sandlot baseball that was forged by, oh, what's his name? I'm blanking right now. What's his name? No, not Smalls. He didn't forge it. The other kid. uh, ah. Benny. Benny. Benny, The Jet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Benny the Jet Rodriguez forged that baseball. We've got the original baseball that's chewed up by the beast. And then we've got the baseball that was given to them by the the guy. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. James Earl Jones. By James Earl Jones, who was playing James Earl Jones in the movie. so this is the very end of Sandlot. These baseballs carry more value because of what they are, right? They have a market value, yes, but that's not what these mean to this kid, Smalls, right? They mean way more than that. This woman brought this bottle of pure nard. The, the wages that could be had from this are a whole year, okay? But, you know, we, we were thinking about this on Thursday, and I... I Honestly, I think it's speculation in my head, so I'm like nervous to talk about this. But you think about what their family had gone through. Mark and I were talking about this on Thursday. This family had gone through. Like Lazarus died, risen from the dead. Mary was, before this, possessed by demons and healed by Jesus. Martha, you know, this busybody woman is, you know, is like looking to just serve Jesus in this way. There's some interesting stuff happening. We hear about Simon the leper. Their dad was apparently a leper at some point, right? Okay, where is mom? We don't know, okay? This family, it's very possible this family has been through the ringer, okay? Um, and they have this heirloom, likely, of a, wage, a year's worth of wages in pure nard. Where did that come from? Why did they get that? I just guess that it's more valuable to them than a year's wages, they break this flask. It says it break it into pieces. That means the flask cannot be used again. A flask that is made to carry enough nard to be equal to a whole year's wages is something significant, okay? You usually just, like, drop it out. You ever see, like, uh, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Warrior? She drops one little drop out of the thing, right? That's all she does at a time. She breaks the flask in pieces and pours the whole thing over Jesus' head. It's a beautiful thing. A few things I want to take from what she did. First, she did what she could. She did what she could is what Jesus says of her. He says, don't, don't worry about her, okay? She did what she could. It's interesting language because it's almost exactly the same thing that Jesus says of the woman with two pennies, two coins in the treasury. She did all she could. Equal standing in Jesus' eyes, right? He looks at this woman who's a widow who has two coins. says she did all that she could. She looks at Mary who has a year's worth of wages in nard and says she did what she could. It turns out that doesn't even compare to what Jesus is worth if we're talking about values. It's actually not about the values. 
The values mean nothing to Jesus in this. He's not comparing the amounts and going, oh, well, the widow is much less of a giver than Mary Magdalene because monetarily this one is way more. Like, that's stupid. Jesus is after their heart. She gave all she had, the best thing she had. She broke it over Jesus' head and said, I know where you're headed. I know where this is going. Jesus says, she prepared my body for burial. Uh, there's some argument as to whether this anointing is a recognition of his kingship or not, and it's pretty obvious from the text, especially Mark's text, that uh, this isn't about his anointing him as king. It would have been used, would have been a different material that was used, went a different scenario, okay? This isn't about anointing him as king. This is about preparing him for burial. Mark says it explicitly. What she has done has prepared me for burial. She apparently has been listening to Jesus. Right? If you think back about the times, three times Jesus has said to the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem because I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Did I mention I'm going to Jerusalem to die? Are the purpose of our trip in this itinerary that we're going to Jerusalem, it is for me to die. He said it three times. The first time, Peter rebukes him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The second time, they're afraid to ask him questions. The third time, they change the subject. <laughs> okay. They are not receiving this message that Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the purpose of dying. But she has been listening. The disciples have been slow and unwilling to accept that Jesus has said about the what Jesus has said about the reason for their trip to Jerusalem. But she's been listening exactly to what he said and recognizing, oh, here we are. The Passover is coming. We're in Jerusalem. He's been telling us that he's going to die here in Jerusalem. What in the world? This might be the time. And so as they're gathered in, their, in her father's house, she goes, I'm going to get the bottle of nard and I'm going to pour it over his head because we're not going to have the opportunity to prepare him for burial. And so I'm preparing him for burial now. This is why we're here. She sees it. She understands it and anoints him. And all of the, the, this little group of disciples, Judas included, are going, no, 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 that's not, that's not the way we do this. This is not a good thing. This, we could have used this money elsewhere. She's going, you have no idea what this man is about to do for you and for the world. It is worth everything I have. Finally, she gets the gospel. She gets it. She understands that Jesus is about to culminate his life on earth by willingly going to the cross. And so the only proper response we have is actually to give all we have, right? To say, God, this whole thing, it's yours. My time at my job, it's yours. The money I earn, it's yours. My family, my kids, my wife, it's yours. The place that I live, it's yours. I give all of my, my circumstances, they're yours. My relationships, they're yours. All of it is yours. That's why Jesus can look at the widow who gives two coins and the uh, Mary Magdalene, his follower, who gives 300 denarii worth of nard and say, these ladies are the same. And they know they're the same. Does anybody else know they're the same? 
Because what's the same about them is not their amount, but rather their heart for Jesus. She gets the gospel. She gets that if Jesus is about to give his life for me, then I'm giving all I've got to him. And so, ironically, the verse after shifts to Judas' response to this scenario. Just like boom, boom, boom. I mean, Mark is really choppy with this. It feels like at times, but he is not choppy in a flippant way. He is choppy on purpose. He wants to jar us and shake us and go, okay, the Sanhedrin's looking for someone, some way to kill Jesus. Man, Mary just poured out a hundred, uh, the whole year's worth of wages on Jesus' head, and Jesus thinks that's a good thing. Judas responds to it immediately after. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. One of the most beautiful recognitions of the gospel portrayed in this woman, and actually Mark sees that a lot of women are paying attention more than the men in this scenario. Good job, guys. We're rocking it. Um, check out Mark. He's got like 15 or so references to ladies who got it. Uh, and, and 12 disciple men who don't have a clue what's going on. So, um, ironically, this week was International Women's Day. Go ladies. Way to listen to Jesus. Help us, please help us listen to Jesus when we're not. Um, Judas turns immediately and goes to the chief priest and betrays them. Judas um, solves the problem the Sanhedrin had, which is they were desiring to capture Jesus silently, to get him arrested in a silent manner, to find him wherever he's hiding, because actually he is hiding in Bethany. He's going into Jerusalem, doing ministry, and then going outside the city over the Mount of Olives to the other side and hanging out in Bethany every time. He's in and out of the city. And so they don't know where he's at, don't know the best place to catch him, whatever. And so Judas says, I'll tell you where he's at and when a good opportunity will be. And Judas starts looking for an opportunity to betray the Son of God. Okay, so what do we do with a passage like this? How do we walk away from this passage? There's a few things that I want to point out to us and challenge us with. First, this. Our sin gives the devil a foothold. Our sin gives the devil a foothold. Just coming off what we just said about G Judas, uh, you find in, in John 12, 6, that it says this about the same scenario. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You see, Judas' motive throughout this whole time as he's recognizing, okay, Jesus is calling me to follow him. He might be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to overthrow Rome. And then we're going to, all of us are going to be in positions of power. He's ready to take advantage of the power structure already. At the get-go, he's going, oh, I'm in charge of the money. Need some commissions from here and commissions from there. I'm going to take a percentage here for myself. A little admin fee, you know, just like knocking off to my side. It's the human fund. Here we are. It's all Judas's money.
what might have started as, you know, a simple thing began to be a thing that was going to catch him. John's description of Judas uh, in this betrayal is that Satan entered him at this time. Satan came upon him. Satan was at work in his betrayal. It's not like Satan just was like, oh, which one do I take? Judas had given him a foothold. He was already thieving from Jesus at this time. Mark describes it interestingly, too. He says, Judas, who was one of the twelve. What this challenges us with is that our proximity to Jesus says nothing of where our heart actually is. We can, we can do all the right things. We can be in the right churches. We can uh, go to Bible studies. We can sing powerful worship songs. But this is all meaningless if we're not listening to his word, repenting of our sin, believing in the gospel of Jesus. All Mary did was listen to Jesus' words and take stock. Just as Jesus said, listen, the time, you know when the time of changing seasons has happened. You can watch the fig and you can discern when the season is changing. She is discerning the season is changing and all these things that Jesus has said about coming to Jerusalem to die are about to be fulfilled. And so I'm going to do the best thing I know. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to pour this over him and anoint him for his burial. She was listening. That's the difference. Judas was not listening. He was looking for an opportunity for himself to gain advantage. Just as James and John were looking for an opportunity to be his right-hand man and an opportunity to put themselves in places of of, uh, advantage. Praise God that 11 of the 12 repented and recognized that. Judas, we don't know where his heart is. And so it's important for us to look at our lives and go, man, God, is there any unclean way in me? Because if there is, please take it and lead me in the way everlasting. Renew my heart, cleanse my heart, search my heart, O God, and know if there's anything unclean in me. We get this idea that because Jesus has paid it all, We've got just unlimited grace to bank on. And if we think that way, we've missed the message, right? Mary got the message. Jesus died, so I'm going to give my whole life to him. Not Jesus died, so I can kind of do whatever I want and get into heaven. Which, operationally, we do a lot of times when we, you know, kind of like look at our sin and go, well, it's okay because justify this and justify that. No. Ask the Lord. Lord, what would you do in my heart today? Don't feel like you got to chew it all off at one time, but have a conversation with Jesus. He's given you his Holy Spirit if you believe in him and trust in him, and ask him, Lord, what do I need to change? I don't want to give the devil a foothold in my life because I want to give my whole life for you. I don't want Satan coming in on me and stopping what you have for me. And when we let our sin fester and be there, it gives the devil a foothold to have sway in our lives.
sway so much in Judah's life that he betrayed the Son of God. That's how much sway it can give. Second is this. Our calling, the calling Jesus has on our life is simply this, to do all we can. Not more than you can, not less than you can. Do all that you can. Right? He's not, Jesus is not up in heaven playing some sort of comparison game with his followers. Right? He doesn't look at the widow and go, man, you got a lot more catching up to do to get to 300 denarii. Jeez. Right? That's not what he's doing. He's looking down at our hearts and going, man, this widow gave more than anybody else ever did because she gave it all. The widow gave two coins, and Mary gave a family heirloom that could be sold for a year's wages, but both of them get the same commendation. They gave what they could, everything. And they did this in response to a God who has given everything for us, his very life. And so what does that mean for us? At our church, this is how we describe that. We do life together. We pray together. We serve together. We celebrate the gospel together. We learn together. What does it mean to give your whole life to Jesus? It's to connect to Jesus, his body, his broken, messed up, confused, misdirected, misunderstanding, ragtag group of believers. That's what it is. Jesus says, you know what? My bride needs you. Come connect to it because I need all that you have to purify this bride. It's not in just one pastor, okay? It's in the community of believers coming together and saying, we need Jesus in our lives fully in every aspect and to examine our lives and go, man, God, how can I give all I am to you? It's to listen with your ears to your brother and sister and go, man, it seems like they're struggling. How can I help? When you don't know how to help, it's to go to your knees and pray and go, God, I need you to step into this scenario that I don't know how to resolve, but you do. When someone comes to know the gospel, it's, it's to celebrate and, and acknowledge how good and great that is. Our calling is to be the body of Christ, to give all that we can, to see that his body is built up and equipped. Mark makes it pretty, pretty obvious to us that one thing is of importance. Jesus is the mission. He's the whole reason that we're here. Mary got it. She understood that what Jesus was about to do was going to change things. She got the gospel that, man, 
He's about to give his life. He didn't have to give his life. He is willingly giving his life. And I give all I've got. And that's this amazing jar of nard. I don't know what it is for you that's a jar of nard. And I don't know what it is for you that's two pennies of a widow. Okay? It doesn't matter the amount. What has God called you to give to the mission of Jesus? Time, treasure, talents. You have to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want my life to be used for you. What can I give to you? The Lord is the one that quickened the widow's heart. The Lord is the one that quickened Mary's heart to give this nard. And so go to the Lord, you saints, and ask him, God, what are you asking me to give? Because I want my life at the end of the day to be marked by this, that Jesus was the mission of my life. I want it to be said, just plain and clear, that whatever efforts I spent my life on, that Jesus was at the center. And I hope that's the same for all of you, that you look up back to your life, not that you did it perfectly, not that you did it uh, exactly how God wanted it to be done or whatever, but man, I hope that when I die, someone says, he lived for Jesus. The vehicles he uses for that, I, I could care less what vehicle he uses for that. Put me in a slum with no money, that's fine. Put me in a rich penthouse with money, that's fine, whatever. I, I, I literally could care less what vehicle he uses as long as at the end people look around and go, that man was following Jesus. And I hope that that's your yearning too. That the purpose of the job you're in is because you recognize God brought you to that job. That the purpose of the family he's given you is that you recognize that God brought you that family. He's the one that knit it together and made it the way it is. Whatever church you may be in, okay? I'm not, you know, we've been here 10 years, Christy and I, and we've seen people come and go in ministry, okay? And this is just the nature of ministry, I hope that wherever God has you next, and some of you are visiting, so like you are other places, okay? I hope that wherever God has you, the goal of your life is that God has called me to this church that I would serve it with all I am because this is the bride of Christ. And man, I can't wait to get to heaven and be surrounded by the saints and angels singing, you're worthy of it all the whole thing. Our calling is really simple. Jesus didn't ask for 10% tithe. He asked for your whole checkbook. He didn't ask for show up on Sunday. He asked for every seven days of the week. He didn't ask for your talent to be used for your glory. He gave you talent for his so recognize that all that you have has been given by your Father in heaven to be a glorious outpouring upon this world and give him all that you can. 
Lord, we're so grateful for who you are, what you've done for us. God, we recognize we are insufficient for the task. You've called us to a task, to be where we are, to proclaim your truth, to stand on your word. You called us to this time and to this place to say very plainly, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is here. The time has been fulfilled. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's given his life on a cross for you, that you could be restored to relationship with your Father in heaven. God, help us to be proclaimers of your gospel. Whether explicitly in the words you give us or implicitly in the lives we choose to lead, God, be in every decision, every action, every word. We give you the glory and honor and praise. Amen.